welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hi, everyone. Aaron is an independent freelance developer currently working with a focus on .NET. His primary experience with functional programming is through this podcast. So his primary benefit to the podcast is making sure we cover topics so that a true novice can understand. We're also joined by Kat Chuang. Hello. Kat is a designer working in a Haskell shop, which means a combination of about 20% Haskell and 80% CSS, both of which are composable languages. She has experience in UX research and organizes events for the New York Haskell user group over the past several years. And Logan Barnett. Hello. Logan is a UI engineer presently working in JavaScript with tools such as Angular and React. He uses a lot of functional concepts in his day-to-day work, as well as ML-inspired tools such as Ramda and Flow. Logan also has a background in back-end development and game development. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a polyglot programmer who, after years of disappointment in the languages I was using, discovered functional programming and never left. I focus on game development and teaching, utilizing FP concepts wherever I can. I make money by writing line-of-business web and desktop applications. And we always love hearing from our community, so please keep that up. You can send us email to contact at lambdacast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at LambdaCast. And if you want to talk to us in a more direct manner, you can go to fpchat.com, join that Slack community, and we are on there in the LambdaCast channel. That's a general community. It's not just for LambdaCast, uh, and there's a lot of resources there, a lot of really good people for learning functional programming. And if you think we're doing a great job, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And uh, this episode, we have three new patrons that we'd like to thank. So Chad Woolley, David Keithley, and Andre Carvalho. Uh, Thank you very much for your patronage. Thanks, everybody. Well, thanks, especially you three. Is that like you're all special, but some of you are more special? (laughs) Exactly. Thanks. Further down the special fractal. Okay. We have a bit of feedback. Joseph Flack wrote in, and he says... Hello, LambdaCast. I recently listened to Talk Python to Me's episode on the Coconut Functional Programming Language, which transpiles to Python 2 and 3 compatible Python. It seems pretty amazing, but I don't know how it stacks up to other functional programming languages. Any thoughts? So I don't believe any of us have used Coconut ourselves. That does seem right. I did take a little bit of time just to look into it after we saw after we got this feedback. Um, and what Coconut is, is it's sort of like a library plus that you're adding into your Python. It gives you um, some new functionality and some new syntax on top of that. And it seems very functional focused. Like it gives you um, an easy way to, oh, geez, I'm blanking on some of the things that were easy. They're like a nice Lambda syntax. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That was one of the examples. It was a real nice Lambda. So it kind of makes some of the things that you might do it in a functional language a little easier. Um, but at the same time, and I'm certainly not a Python expert, you're, you're still working in Python. Um, all valid Python syntax is still valid in Coconut. So it's kind of a layer on top of Python. So it's a superset. It's You take everything that Python has and you add in these other things. Yes. And so as far as uh, how it stacks up to other functional programming languages, I'll leave that to you guys. But that's the basic idea behind Coconut. So what's our thoughts on Coconut? Well, have we done things like that? So it, it from the from a glance at it, 
it adds things that make functional type programming more easy. Sure, it's got like a pipe forward kind of operator. Um, some, it has partial application support. It's got some pattern matching. So all the sort of the bread and butter like things you would expect in a functional programming language, which seems good if you're in the Python space. That that seems like that would make your your world easier. I'm not sure how well that interacts with existing Python code. Like, can you partially apply a function that wasn't written in Coconut? And if so, um, that would be great. If not, then you have this divide where it's like, eh, I have my Coconut stuff, which is nice to work with, and I have my regular Python stuff, which is not nice. Python 3 has is more object-oriented, isn't it? They got better support for classes, yeah. But you can still write regular functions in it. Right, but I mean, like, you... So I've run into this problem with JavaScript where the, the this is bound to something, and that's important. Oh, okay. So you can't use the the methods that they have as standalone functions. Uh, you can. You just have to make sure that you bind the this to it when you when you do your partial application. Yeah, I don't think Python works that way. I don't think they have a bind for this. Yeah. Like, I don't think you can bind it to an arbitrary object the like, way you can in JavaScript. If you pluck a function off of an object, you can't necessarily use that. I, I believe that that may be correct. I don't think any of us are Python people, are we? I've used some Python. Um, so I'm curious how something like Coconut might interact with an existing library. Like, I don't know, if you're doing web development, does it help with that? Or does it help more if you're doing data science? Like, like if you're using pandas to mm -hmm. crunch through a lot of data, I mean, does this help that? Does it replace certain features? That is where I'm curious, and I don't know the answers. Yeah, it didn't look like it, uh, it wouldn't replace any of your libraries. Mm -hmm. It was just like a syntax. It's almost like a, like what Lodash or Ramda does for JavaScript and ah, providing okay. a bunch of tools that make writing your other code easier or more elegant in some way. Uh, but it doesn't look like it would replace any specific, like it's not going to replace Django or, or Pandas. So right? could it be like mustache for HTML or CoffeeScript right. for JavaScript? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's largely trying to trying to do something like okay. that. Although without introducing a new syntax to replace right. existing things, it's a superset kind of syntax, which is an interesting approach. Yeah. That's the maximum incompatibility, right? Because all valid Python is valid coconut. Mm -hmm. So you automatically have a lot. I guess um, if you're evaluating this, uh, Joseph, my question to you would be, can you use existing libraries uh, with, the, with the new coconut features? Can you destructure things that are returned from regular Python? Uh, functions like a tuple or something or does it have to be supported by the transpiler does the transpiler insert extra things that make those sort of things possible so it's a very incremental approach right uh, you're not gonna things that you will not get with this you're not going to get any guarantee against side effects like there's no purity kind of constraints anywhere uh, you're still going to have nulls every you know the potential for nulls everywhere because you're taking on all of the existing uh, python like all python is valid so it's totally valid to mutate things. And so you, what you lose out in a, something like this is uh, you aren't being able to like ditch concepts out of your head that you don't have to worry about because the language takes care of them for you, which is a lot of the value I get out of a functional language like, you know, an Elm or a PureScript or a Haskell or something is that I don't have to worry about nulls and I don't have to worry about ex like uh, side effects and things like that. You've said quite a bit that you feel like... Um there are some benefits you get in a functional language that you don't get in some of the ones that are just kind of mimicking some of the features and you almost don't understand until you get there. But at the same time, I think you're saying, well, if I was doing, doing work in Python, I would definitely consider looking at Coconut because it's going to give me things that I want that I wouldn't get otherwise. Is right. That accurate? 
Yeah, in the same way that if I'm in uh, JavaScript, I'm certainly going to use Ramda and like either Flow or TypeScript or something like that. So I'm going to make JavaScript the nicest environment I can turn it into. But I think to say like, okay, great, now I have a functional language that I'm programming in, to some degree misses the point of what a language designed for functional programming from the ground up is trying to do and some of the benefits it can bring. Right. I think I think this is primarily trying to enhance the Python ecosystem more so than it is to give yeah, us... Yeah, if you're a, already a Python developer, then maybe uh, you should check this out. And I would imagine that the promise of it is, is like, yeah, you can use all this destructuring and stuff with existing Python libraries, I'm guessing. I mean, it seems like it'd be very limited in use if, if that were the case. But I mean, it's just like, it's just like Babel transforms the JavaScript. It's, you know, you can use destructuring on things that were never meant to have destructuring mm -hmm. used on them. That's a good point. It, it's probably... It's just, it's just sugar like that. that it... Yeah that it's providing for you. So under the hood, it just it compiles all the gnarly code that you would have had to write, write by hand. Maybe that's enough for this topic that we don't totally know a whole lot about anyway. We've, we've, sure. We've... Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, our next bit of feedback came from Gabe Johnson, and he uh, was commenting in terms of our episode about the functional programming community about having hack nights instead of presentations. And he linked us to an article that we'll put in the show notes. And the sort of... Summary of the article was, uh, it was the experience of a certain programming language community, and they switched from doing the sort of regular presentation format to doing more of a, hey, come work on some stuff and, and learn. And they noticed a big difference in the type of people who were attending. It was much less of the people who already knew related languages coming and kind of just talking more about stuff they kind of knew about. And it turned into a lot of people who were trying to learn the thing in the first place, like converts and refugees from, from other languages started coming because it felt like a place where that was a, okay, it was okay to show up and not know anything. So maybe it's a good way to start building a community as opposed to maintaining something that's already there. Right. That, that's, I think, definitely was the point of what he was going for. I've gone to a couple of uh, the node hack nights here in Portland and... Uh, I would say at least 50% of the people who show up are very new to JavaScript in general. And it, it feels like a safe place for them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they get to learn from people who are experienced, and you know, experienced people get to see what other experienced people are also working on, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've um, switched our local, the Phoenix Functional Programming Group. We um, kind of switched away from presentations to working on a project as a group which is a little bit different of an experience where we kind of mob programming style rotate through and we're just building an app together. I did that because I want people to have hands-on experience, uh, even if they weren't going to do that on their own time. But I can definitely agree that uh, people kind of in a very informal environment, sitting around, working on stuff, you can look around, hey, what are you working on? What are you working on? It's a nice way to kind of get started. Although, Logan, you did make a comment that I think is the downside of this kind of environment which is uh, you have this tendency to maybe just talk for hours and hours and not really work on anything. Yeah, I, sh I show up and I do way more networking than I do like actually getting work done sometimes. And yeah, sometimes I actually want to go there to get some work done and kind of feed off of the, the surrounding motivation that everybody has. But if people are kind of chit-chatting all over, then it's can be hard to, to get much done. I can drown people out, but if I jump in on the conversation, my ability to focus on my own work is gone. I also agree that it's really a fun way for Hack Nights to meet people, see what they're working on, and maybe even go off topic. But I've been told uh, by someone who is introvert that these sort of events are really scary. They, it, like, there's no structure, so they're not sure how to insert themselves into the um, atmosphere. 
So I suppose it can draw different types of personalities and maybe those who are a little more extroverted do tend to go off topic and, and tangent off into different themes. I mean, it's certainly always been safe. I've seen people who just kind of like, they just show up and they just do their own thing while they're there. And that's never been a bad thing. Someone might show up and be like, hey, what are you working on? And that's usually like a great way to start talking about stuff. But Kat, you're, you're saying that your friend felt like intimidated yes. by the fact that they might have to talk. They couldn't just sit there and be quiet and watch the presentation. They had to like interact with people. Right. And so this friend also spoke from the um, experience of being a presenter as well, where after presenting, uh, people would come and seek them out instead of this person thinking about, okay, who can I make eye contact with and say hello and I um, start a conversation with? Yeah, I think as an introvert, it might be tough to be in a very unstructured scenario where the interaction is, well, if you want to talk to someone, you should probably just run up to them and say, hey, what are you working on? That's not always an easy thing to do. And there's... That's usually what happens to you if you're just sitting there working on something. Oh, someone will come up and ask what you're working on? Someone will come up and be curious what you're working on. Yeah. So as an introvert, you might you might be approached. And, and that's very, that's usually a very easy way to start an interaction. Right. So overall, I would... I think, broadly speaking, hack nights are probably a fairly approachable thing. Yeah. There may be certain individuals who have, you know, misgivings about it. But compared to showing up and there being a presentation that maybe you feel completely unequipped to to even understand. Especially if you don't know if it's okay to ask questions during the presentation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, for all those people out there organizing functional stuff, you might think about mixing it up and maybe alternating between hack nights and presentations if you really enjoy both of those formats, because there's value to both of those. Uh, but just, yeah. So thank you, Gabe, for pointing that out. And now we will proceed to our main topic, which is uh, extension from last show. Uh, we did functors, and now we're moving on to applicative functors, which you may have guessed are related. So. Before we go on to applicative functors, it makes sense that we should review what a functor is. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Well, functors are like uh, like containers in a very generalized sense, right? They could, a functor could be a list, it could be a maybe, uh, it could be a number of other things where you have to kind of like indirectly get the thing on the inside. We use the word structure instead of container. Sure. And and we did that because there's things that uh, you're correct that there is a value inside. There There is some sense of that. But sometimes it doesn't feel very uh, containery. For example, a promise. Would you describe a promise as a container? No. But a promise is a functor. But it's something that you have to kind of like unwrap to get the, the thing that you really want, right? Yes. Yes, uh, that is correct. And functors themselves have no way of unwrapping the thing inside. They, they, so it's a, a structure that has a map operation, right? and that map allows you to take a function and apply it to the thing inside the structure and get the same structure, same kind of structure back with a new value inside, right? So you have a, you have a promise that's going to give you a string. Let's say it's a promise that's going to give you JSON, and you do some map operation to pluck some part of it off, and then you have a promise that's going to give you back a string or an int or an array or something like that. The, the promise has stayed the same. The thing inside has been changed by the, or, or you've gotten a new promise back, really, with a different thing inside. This is the result of your function. So it, it is, it, container is not a terrible intuition, I think. Uh, but, but things like promises or channels, they don't feel containery 
still have this structural kind of concept. And the important part about that was is that the the specific structure uh, is what uh, makes one thing distinct from another. Right? We talked about the structure of a list is that the elements are in order and that you can access them directly. It, let's say like in an array kind of thing, right? But a linked list, the elements are in order, but you can't access them directly. Right. But it's very cheap to insert new elements at the end, for example, or at the beginning, depending on which direction your, your lists go. So there's the, all these different structures, right? Promises are the structure that says, at some point I will have a value. Right. That, that's what the structure means, right? <laughs> so in most senses, it's exactly like a list of one element, except that it may not be there yet. Is is the map for promise, is that is that still, that's going to be asynchronous, right? Right. The map, the mapping operation cannot happen until the value exists. Okay. But but the type will go from a promise of A to a promise of B via your A to B function. Right. Right. Because your because map gives you the container back. Right. So it, you'll give Not you a new container, promise. The, the functor. The same functor. The structure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The same kind of functor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you can't go from a, you, you won't go from a promise of A to a, list of b or something like that <laughs> that's not that's not part of right how uh, th- at that point that's just a amorphism that's just an a to b function right that that doesn't have any special we're not we're not talking like about necessarily functors in some special way anymore right exactly so especially you know functors are the special case of you know a certain kind of operation yeah so yeah uh so a functor is so let me give the quick simple definition because i talked with you quite a bit about this since even our last episode where we, de- where we defined it a functor is a structure that um, has a map function that, that can be applied to it. It's really important that it has the map function as well. Um, and you just talked about promise. A structure could also um, more commonly be a list or an array. But it's the, it has to have the structure and it has to be mappable to be a functor. Right. And that map has these two laws, which are usually they're no, not a big deal at all. They're just the laws are if you map identity the identity function over the structure, you get the exact same thing back. Like mm-hmm. if you if you have an f of a and you map identity over that, you get f of a back. The same f of a. You haven't changed anything. I'm wondering when when would that not be the case? Uh, you could have a functor that doesn't actually run your function and just gives you something else back. <laughs> okay. I mean, it would it would have to be pretty wacky, right? But th- that's why those laws are there just to like make sure we're really honest about what we're doing. Here. Right. Right. You're definitely not a functor anymore if you're doing that. Fair. You know, if you're violating that. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I think there are some uh, interesting blog posts where people write um, non-law abiding functor instances where the types match up. So like your type system can't tell if you're like in Haskell or whatever, <laughs> but they don't obey that law. They do, you know, shenanigans in there. That sounds like one of those Turing tar pit exercises. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the second law has to do with composition. And it says if you map f over your functor, and then you map g over the result of the previous map, you, it's the same as composing f and g, the two functions first, and then just mapping that. I see. I remember that now. I, the laws are a little strange because they, they feel a little esoteric, but uh, it's not, they're there for a reason, of course. But Yeah, they're kind of common sense, like stuff... They basically say this works the way you expect you it to. You could skip having two maps and just use one if you compose Correct. the two mapping functions. functions. The two. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And in the same way that associativity for monoids and semigroups allowed us to do things like, huh, I could just kind of like uh, do like a, a windowing thing 
before I send it across the network. And I could just compose all these monoids together, like append them together and then send one thing instead of sending them individually and have them append at the other side. And it can't possibly change the meaning of what we're doing in the same way that that associativity gave you that freedom. If you are, if you see a map followed by a map, you know, you could just do the composition and then map it once. And that's totally safe. Yeah. Like the functor laws say, this is an okay approved safe thing to do. So that's the laws are useful sometimes for that kind of thing. Got it. Cool. So now we know all about functors. Let's talk about applicative functors, which has the distinction of being kind of a weird name uh, in, in terms of this kind of like hierarchy that gets built up between functors and monads. Applicative functors kind of sit there in the middle. And an applicative functor is a functor, which you would you would hope, right? Uh, okay. And it's an applicative functor that adds two new operations. So a functor just has map. An applicative functor is going to add two new things. The first thing it's going to add is the ability to take a, a regular value, an A, and put it into the structure. So you have an A, and you use pure. Uh, it's generally called pure. Uh, it can also be called return. Uh, but the applicative version is usually called pure. And that kind of takes the value and wraps it up in whatever your structure is. So if you are in JavaScript land, promise.return is pure. It takes your value and it puts it into a promise. Um, does that mean, so to in a C-sharp land, say we have a list, um, are we just saying list.insert? Are you talking about like you have a structure of A and you can put another A in there? Uh, it's... You specifically, you're going to take an A and put it into the structure. So this would give you a list with one element. You mean you can create a new list with your A or a new structure with your A? It would create a new list that only contains one value, which is your A. Okay. So you're not, you know, you're not appending on a previous list or retaining previous list. You Correct. can create a new list with one item of that type or a list, sorry, new structure. But, but list in the list, list case, it would be a list with one element. That's what pure would be for list. Yeah. And I want to cut, we're a little late on this, but just real quick, also in C-sharp land, map is just select on in, in link. Just uh, some quick vocab there if right. you're working in a different language. A quick nitpick for, for Dave. Uh, I think he meant promise.resolve instead of promise.return. What did I say? Uh, promise.return. Yes, that's probably not actually a real thing, is it? I think you mean resolve. It gives you back yeah, yeah. a promise that's going to resolve a value that you've provided it already. So there's no like... right. And then you can dot then off that yeah. to continue. Yeah, then now you've got a promise and you can yeah. do all promise things on it and yeah. stuff. So if you're writing out a type signature for promise.resolve, it would be, it takes in a value of a type a and it gives you back a promise of a. A promise that when, you know, can yield the value a out. So it's a to f of a. Yeah, where f is your promise. Yeah, yeah. In that case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we should talk about the, the type signature for pure. Um, it is exactly what you said, a to f of a, where the constraint there's a constraint on f, which is f must be uh, an applicative in this case. I know there's no um, there's no requirement for this, but is this usually represented with a capital F or a lowercase f? Uh, so in like a Haskell type signature type thing? Sure. Uh, it would be a lowercase f because all uppercase uh, those, types those are like concrete, are concrete types. types. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. The other ones so are this is a... parameterized types, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So f is f of a is and we kind of talked about it last episode the um the higher kinded type it's a yeah. any type that is parameterized by another type f could be a promise or a list or a pick your maybe pick your functor mm -hmm. right yeah. exactly any functor anything that is parameterized by one 
additional type. And it's, and it's parameterized because you've got the 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 a part in the f f and a f of a f of a yeah the the a part is parameterized and so is the f part yes whereas normally they're both normally you just like you can only parameterize types inside of your stuff if you're coming from like a java or a c sharp mm -hmm. territory or flow for that matter flow or typescript i found someone who did higher kind of types in flow i'll have to show it to you so there are ways of doing it, and it's like by creating a tuple of types Something together. Like there's there's some tricks to do. There's there's an encoding of higher kind of types in languages that don't have it. It's kind of awkward, mm. but it, it can be done. But in terms of languages that have it natively, Got you it. see that f of a kind of thing. That's the higher kind of type support coming in. Um, yeah, and it's saying saying f can be anything and a can be anything, but f has this requirement that it itself is parameterized by at least one thing, yeah. or else f of a wouldn't make any sense. Like if f was int. What is int of int? Like, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. Right, that, that's nonsensical. Okay, so we've got pure. Pure says, I can take a value, and I can kind of put it into the structure. So for maybe, this would be just. Like, it would be the just constructor, where it creates a, a new maybe that, that's a just. Uh, for either, it'd be right. For uh, list, we said it'd be like a singleton list. Promise, it's kind of like promise.resolve. Okay, so that's the first part. That's a little bit interesting. It allows you to put things into the structure where map, but like with functors, functors say nothing about how you get a value in or out. All they say is you can get a new one <laughs> with a different thing inside. I want to ask a question about a vocabulary word you snuck in there, which was you said it's called an applicative, the, the F, in the, in this situ in the, for, for this rule. You okay. said that the structure is called an applicative. Is, uh, the, I sorry. that right? The, the structure must be an applicative. So... Um, pure takes your a mm -hmm. and converts it to an f of a mm -hmm. where the f type has um, two functions implemented for it one of which is pure and the other one is this thing we're going to talk about called apply okay so it's sort of like um, what it's saying is you can go from a to an f of a where f like implements the interface applicative Got it. It's kind of what it's saying. It's an extra restriction on what the F can be. Not only is it parameterized by another type, it's an F of A. Mm -hmm. It but also has these two operations. Yeah, this this pure and apply, which what and does apply I do? Okay, so apply is the, the secret sauce. That's, that's the reason you would use an applicative. And what it solves is this situation. Let's say we have two maybes. Okay, so we've, we've gone and we've run two functions that each return, that both maybe return, let's just say an integer, just to keep things simple, right? And we want to take these two integers and we want to add them together. What do we do? So we have like maybe one and maybe two. We want to add them together and get our final result. And this is where you've got your chaining function that, well, you can compose them together, right? Compose them how? Um, I don't remember the word you used for it, but... Uh, you did say that we can go from, uh, so say for instance, if we have like something that goes from A to B and then from B to C, we can compose those and then run map over that. And that just works. Oh, sure. Right. Is, sure, sure. is that what we're talking about here where it's like, I can go from, I can map from one to the other and I'm still, I'm still in a maybe, or I'm still in a promise or, or, or whatever. Okay, so let's say let's let's say we are going to use um, plus as our operation right. we want to use, yeah. right? So we could map plus over the first maybe. Let's say there's a a one in the first maybe and a two in the second maybe. Okay. Right? So they're both justs. They they have values. Mm -hmm. 
right? Neither one's a nothing. So let's map plus over the first one. What do we get back? Well, we get a maybe of just three. No, no. There's two separate maybes. Okay. One and two. One and two. We map, we map plus over the first maybe. So oh, I see. what happens if we, so we have a function that's it's let's assume that it's a a curried function and all the stuff I that see. we would kind of expect, but right? Plus take needs two integers and we've only got one. Right. So what we do is we get back just of plus one or one plus with an you know partially applied plus mm -hmm. with one applied to it, right? Okay. And then we have this whole other maybe sitting over here with the two in it. And there's no good way to like connect those, right? They're two set. Yeah, yeah. They're both inside their maybes. Yeah. So what we'd have to do is like do a from maybe kind of operation to like get the value out of the first maybe and then do the from maybe kind of operation to get the maybe out of the second one mm. and then add those two together and then wrap it back up into maybe. Right. Or something like that. Or just, you know, have the value but, but out if we This want to. other function is the generalized form of that. Uh, when you which other function uh, of saying this 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 op the second operation that an applicative functor has yes that's what we're getting towards yeah. so i'm just trying to find the motivating example for why you would even care about Got this it. yeah and sorry i know we're kind of spending more time here than you might want to but so uh remind me real quick on on maybes because i'm not real familiar with them is that a is that a java thing or is that a um functional thing um so conceptually it's it could be anything Sure. Uh, but it's the type that represents I either have a value or I don't have a value. Okay. I'm either just or nothing. It's kind of like the nullables from... Uh, they are a lot like the sure. nullables, except they are enforced. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in a lot of other languages, they're also called optionals. In F-sharp, I think they're called optional. Uh, yeah. Swift also calls them optional. Yeah. Um, so the, the idea here is that um, when you have an operation that might fail, like you you try to get a key out of a dictionary. You, you know, try get try get a key or try get value mm -hmm. from from C sharp. That gives you back a Boolean and has an out parameter so you can get your value out. Yeah, it assigns your out by reference. And it, yeah, and it just like clobbers whatever variable you pass in. In F sharp, they convert functions of that form automatically to maybes. Oh, so okay. they just literally hand you back a value that says, I have two possible states. Either I got a value or I didn't. And if I got a value, here it is. Mm -hmm. So that's called just and nothing, or sometimes it's sum and none. Those are other words that those go by. You have to run mm -hmm. some operation over it that allows you to unwrap the value. Right. You can't just say, give me the value, because there might not be a value. There's no trying to do something that might be null. It's when it, I have a value, I want you to do this. And we have talked about this in other podcasts. It was more like I just needed a quick review. Yeah. Sure. That's perfect. And map on maybe is implemented such that if it's a nothing value, it just doesn't apply the function because there's nothing to apply it to. And if it's adjust, then it applies the value, the function to the value inside, gets a wraps it up in a new just, and then that's your result. Mm -hmm. So we get into the situation where we have to like pattern match and unwrap the two values, or do use from maybe or something like that to get them out, and then we can do our operation. And it's really kind of awkward. It'd be cool if we could just say, you know, if I have a maybe with a value in it and a maybe with a function in it. Could I just like mush them together at the maybe level? And so that's what apply does. Apply has the signature of, so if you, if you remember map, map is an A to B function and an F of A, and I give you back an F of B. And instead what apply does is it says, if I have an F of A to B, so an F containing the A to B function and an F of A, then I'll give you back an F of B. What, what does it mean to be F of A to B? So it's a, whatever your applicative functor is. Yeah. So let's say uh, maybe in this case. So you have a maybe with a function inside. Instead of it being a maybe of four, 
it's a maybe of absolute value. But but you're saying you have a function for your... The function is the value inside the maybe. That's correct. How is that helpful for you? <laughs> okay. So this is usually where people go like, I want to get off the functional programming train now. <laughs> like, why don't you just supply the actual function? I, like, why does it need to be? I, I'm to not maybe? saying this in disbelief. I just, you know, right. I'm sure there's there's why reason is it to helpful? this. Okay, I just don't know. Sure. So, the, Aaron, you're you're saying why don't you just have like a regular function, right? Yeah. Why does this need to be in a maybe as opposed to not? But go ahead. So we get some. Uh, if you think about it, we we had a regular function, a to b, mm-hmm. and uh, an f of a to an f of b. If we had a function that takes um, one argument, that's that works out okay, because you can you can just take your f of a and get back your f of b, right? Mm-hmm. But if you had a function that took multiple arguments, this would start to get awkward, as we talked about, because you would end up with a like a partially applied plus function in one of your maybes and your other value you want to use in your other maybe, and there's no way of like combining those, right? If I if I manually construct a just plus one and mm-hmm. just two, I just have to unwrap them both and then uh, combine them normally, you know, apply them normally. Uh, there's no way leaving them in the structure to combine them. But how does having, well, maybe I need some more explanation. Does it feel like having the, the function in a maybe wrapper? Like, well, maybe I'm going to give you a function that's going to fix this, or maybe I'll just give you nothing. Remember the, that's what it sounds that, like that's, you're saying. That is a semantic that is specific to maybes and not to functors. Hmm. Right. Yeah, not all functors have this concept of I may or may not have a value. Like promises don't have that. Mm-hmm. Well, they could reject, but I mean, like a list doesn't have like a I have nothing kind of semantic to it, right? Right. It's just it's a just list run that's empty. It's still a list. If if I had if I had a func a list of functions, I could map them over. I could apply them to a list of values. And then that's that's semantically. Uh, that would that would come down to how. Well, let's finish apply. Let's let's go through the whole thing. Okay. Well, I I thought that was maybe a concrete example, but yeah, no, no, it is. I just want to get to the whole type signature because I think we cut out halfway through. Oh, okay, okay. So we have an f of a to b, meaning a function. Uh, sorry, an f containing a function a to b, and an f of a, and I'll give you back an f of b. It looks almost exactly like map. It's just that the function is wrapped up in the f. So that's the difference between apply and map is that apply expects the function to already be wrapped up in whatever your thing is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you have a function and then a, a value that can be fed into that function. Those two things, we're going to combine them. Now, the you gave a specific example of like if you have a list of functions. Yeah. Uh, but it would really be a list of list of functions. Would it be? Because uh, your f... Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're right. You'd have a list of functions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, f is your list and a to b is your function, right? Uh, I don't actually know how apply is implemented for list. I've never used but, it. But there's list. potentially usefulness there, right? Where you could say like, I've got oh, a, there's definitely a series of functions um, that I want you to apply to a series of values or something. Whereas like I have, I might have a function or I might not isn't quite as helpful. When usually we have the function, right? Here's where it can come useful. And we can stick with maybes actually. Because okay. maybes... Uh, can display this so let's say we have the function plus so we have our two maybes one and two mm-hmm. so we have just one and just two and we have just plus all right that's our function inside our maybe okay so plus is a function takes two arguments 
int and int to int, right? Okay. So we have just plus is our f of a to b, and just one is our f of a. So we use apply, and the one and the plus get, or the plus gets applied to the one, and we end up with just one plus, right? So it's a partially applied plus function. Okay. That then becomes, that's now an f of a to b, right? It's still a function, even though we've applied something to it. So now we can apply again just two. So we can use that as a second, we can apply again. So what we're able to do is we're able to take a function that takes n arguments, right? Mm -hmm. And we're able to have it n f of somethings, and we're able to apply them to the function inside the structure. So if you have an argument that, or if you have a function that takes three arguments, you could have a maybe with that thing inside, and three maybes with the arguments inside, and you could use apply three times, boom, 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 to apply those values to the function, or to apply the function to the values one at a time, boom, boom, boom. And you would end up with a final result of that function, but all of this is taking place in the structure. And the value of that is that the structure then gets to have its rules. So in the structure of maybe, it says, if any of these are nothing, we're done. We're just a nothing, right? So let's say in our example with our plus, we had just plus one and nothing. So we do the first apply and we take the just plus and just one. We apply it and we get just one plus. That makes sense so far? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we take nothing, just, you know, just one plus and nothing. We combine those. What do we get? Well, you said that we're going to get nothing. If any of the values we're, are nothing. We're going to get nothing. Yeah, because that's what nothing. maybe does. It says, if, if you try to combine things and one of them but is if, nothing. If we had three and it was one, two, and nothing, then we still get nothing. We don't get three and we're not happy. Would you ever run into a situation, though, where you have a, a maybe of this function, but it's real, it's, it's true value is nothing, like when, once you go to unwrap it? You're saying the maybe, um, the, the f of a to b is actually nothing? Yeah. Sure. What if you had a function that tries to build up dynamically another function and it doesn't have all the parts it needs and so it returns nothing instead of the actual function? Okay. I mean, I, it's not super common, but I could see that happening. Got it. Like it needs to go query something and it can't find it or, or whatever. Now, well, once you're in functor land, is there ever any getting out of it? So that is not defined by the functor interface itself, just... Uh, either applicative functor or regular functor. That's just right? by the individual functor. By the specific type, exactly. Got it. Because uh, you could have a type that you don't ever want to escape, like intentionally. Like it's you don't want to be able to get a value directly out. Interesting. Okay. And IO is an example of this. I was about to say like buffers sound like a good example of that. Yeah, I'm sure we can come up with examples where it's it would be unsafe to kind of like directly grab the value out. Yeah, like you, all, um, you, but you always have to access it through them. some kind of intermediary. Right. Um, so this is useful um, in a lot of places. But let's say we want to do something like um, uh, you have a function that you go, you want to go and query some things. You want to go do some HTTP requests. And you're going to do three different requests. So this is like a promise.all kind of thing in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Go fire off these multiple promises. And when they're all done, then let's proceed to the next step kind of thing, right? Applicatives are very good for this kind of thing. Because what you can do is you can have your function that's going to combine the results of all three of these promises that you fired off. That is your f of a. And then you just do this multiple apply thing, right? You you have your f of, sorry, I said f of a, your f of a to b. Yeah. 
Except it's really an f of a to b c d d. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have an f of a, then you can compose it with an f of a to you know f of b to c, right? Right. We can just partially apply it, yeah, and, yeah. and we're just going to do one at a time. So you have your function that takes the three arguments, and then you have three different promises, and your promises are applicative. And so, uh, just like their functors, they're also applicative. So each of those promises fires off, and when they have produced a result then the apply can happen because the apply for promise knows it has to wait until there's actually value there, right? Mm -hmm. So all these things run off in parallel. And as they come back, we start applying them to the function or applying the function inside the the promise to each one of them. So if our function takes three arguments, uh, int, a string, and a bool, or three strings or whatever it is, the first one comes back, great, we can apply that. The next one comes back, great, we can apply that. The third one comes back, great, we can apply that. And then we end up with this final promise that's the result of running that function with all three of its arguments. And the great thing is, is that just like maybe, if promise has a fail state, we're not going to try to complete the operation, right? Right, it can just because fall we through. Because didn't, we didn't actually get a value back. And continue to reject. Yes, they could reject or something like that. So this allows the you to do a normal function <laughs> that's not just an A to B function, it's a more complex function, within the context of a structure and let the structure have its rules and enforce its rules. And you can kind of uh, be agno agnostic to those rules. Like you don't actually care that these rules are there. You can just use any regular function with n arguments. And uh, if you have n arguments, then of course you have to do an apply n times once per argument so that you are fully saturated and, and, and the function can uh, compute its value. This gets used a lot for things like validations. If you have a, a bunch of validators, you can run those each as an applicative and then you can combine them together such that at the end, either all the validations worked or if one of them rejected or multiple of them rejected, you get all of those things together at the end. You get basically an array. So think of a operation that appends things to a list. That's your that's your function that's in your, your structure, your like validator structure. And you have other validators that are running and the apply combines them and aggregates them all into a big list. So at the end, you can say, like, check the email and check the password and check that they did this and check that they did that and that they're an admin. Check all these things. And those are just functions within this validation applicative. And at the end, you aren't going to just get it like a nothing, like a single nothing. You're going to get actually all the values combined into a list. Like, that's a very common thing to use, like, an um, applicative for. It sounded like you said, and maybe this was just, perhaps this was just because you were talking about the maybe. But it sounded like you said in the, in the case of the maybe, if one of the values wasn't valid, though, then you just, you get like no value back. You just get nothing. That's how maybes work. That's correct. But there are other structures like validation that don't work that way. Okay. So if you had validation, it was strings or something talking about, if you had like error messages or something along those lines. You would get all of them. You get all of them back. And then the ones that, if it validated just fine, they'd just be empty or, or you would right. get nothing at all. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. it worked. So at the end, you could check. Did any of these things fail? Did I, get a, did I get a success state or did I get a failure state? And if I got a failure state, it contains a list of all the ones that failed. Okay. Versus the first one that fails, we just bail Which out. Which means it has to perform all of the operations. Correct. All of them have to happen. That's exactly correct. So I have a question about the input types. Do, do they have to match? Like if you're comparing two lists, do they have to be the same elements in each? The same types of elements? For, are you talking about like do you have different applicatives that you're applying? Um, so I'm trying to think of a concrete example. Um, so maybe a function like is 
lambda cast um, host. So we have uh, in the list of the names, each of our names, Aaron, Kat, Logan, Dave, and then maybe we have a separate list of random names like Alice, Bob, Charlie, Dora, and then there are four elements each. So then um, I guess the result, the ending result would be false, four false um, elements because Alice, Bob, Charlie, Dora don't match the host um, set. So um, I'm curious if the two, I guess, yeah, the two input lists have to be matching in the number of elements. What if I passed in different sizes? Does that matter? Okay, so I think you're talking about like specifically uh, list, like oh, yes. the implementation on list. List of strings. I actually am not familiar with that. Oh, okay. With how list works internally, because it's going to be based on the specific uh, structure that you're talking about. Okay. Apply, apply, as you mean. Apply would be. Sorry, I said that wrong. Yes, apply. I mean, your your a to b function has to. I would imagine A has to match the initial type that you're applying this to. Oh. Exactly. Right. So you have an F of A to B and an F of A. So the A has to match. F of A to B. So in her example, F of A, her F of A to B was is lambda cast host. It takes a string and returns a bool. So she has an F of A to B mm -hmm. um, function. And then she's going to apply that to some F of A, which is a string. When you, and and so... Would she apply it to... Because I don't fully understand either. Is there multiple lists she'd be applying this to? Yeah. Or would it just be one list? I know Again. you said you don't know exactly for lists, so maybe that's hard to work with. It's just that feels like the structure that I'm most comfortable with. Sure. Also. And I see this mostly applied to things like validations and uh, maybes and promises, like asynchronous computations. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets used a lot for parsers, where you can say, did it match these things? And you, you kind of set up a pattern. So there's a lot of applicative parsers. And what is the reason that, that it's used in that case? Is it because because we talked earlier about the pure thing, where like you just get one value and you can turn it into a into a structure of that type? And so, is that kind of useful here? Like, do you when you're doing validation asynchronously, do you get back just a single result sometimes that you need to throw in to the? So so it's value because you can take a function that doesn't know anything about your structure mm -hmm. and lift it up into your structure such that it is then operating on other values inside the same kind of structure. And you get to enforce your rules about when that is allowed and when that's disallowed. But the function doesn't have to know anything about it. I, I think I, I, I see something clever here, which is you can take the, 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 a, the a to b function, you will probably often use pure to produce the, the like functor, you know, the f with a to b. The f of a to b, yes, right, correct, and then and then you throw that into your applies, your apply chain, or and then you whatever. chain applies after, yeah. yes, okay, that's almost always the the structure. And so in Haskell, you'll see this as um, there's like the dollar sign meaning like function application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you have a thing dollar sign other thing, the thing on the right is uh, fed into the thing on the left, right, and they use dollar sign to avoid parentheses a lot of the times. So there's a uh, dollar sign in angle brackets, like XML or HTML tag kind of brackets. Yeah, I've seen this before. So that is map, uh, just like an infix map, which in this case uh, can, is often used with applicatives because, as we said before, if we have our you know plus you know, our two argument function like plus, 
and we map it over a value in an applicative or, or an effunctor, we get back that same structure partially applied. So in that sense, it is the equivalent of doing a pure on the function first to put it in the same structure and then doing an apply oh. on the first value that it would be applied to. You can kind of go all directly there in one jump by just doing map. And then what you'll do is you'll chain um, uh, angle brackets with the asterisk inside, and that continues applica more applications. So if we had our plus, we would say plus uh, angle bracket dollar sign, uh, just one, angle bracket asterisk, just two. Now, if I turned on ligatures in my, in my spiffy IDE, would I see different symbols there? Uh, yeah, like Haskellig and Furicode. Yeah, any uh, of those. Would I, would I see, those. for these specific operations, would I be seeing yes. different glyphs? Yeah, those support the Haskell operations, yeah. And Haskell and PureScript are the only two that do this, um, but they're common enough that I mean, those are supported by those fonts. Do, do they trace back to some kind of like Lambda calculus notation or some mm -hmm. kind of category They were trying to match, they were um, matching function application Mm -hmm. uh, the regular function application, but it's function application within a structure. Yeah. So that's what the that's where the angle brackets came from. I see. So they would still and be again, in this, angle brackets in the ligature setup. Uh, it kind of people should just go look. Okay. You'll, you'll okay. see what it looks like. Um, to varying degrees, it looks like a spiffy operator kind of thing. Got it. Uh, but this is like we said last episode. This is the kind of thing you should go look at some examples of this, mm -hmm. and we can post examples to to a usage of this operator this dollar sign some people call it a i don't know if they call that one the start the spaceship i think they call the other one the tie fighter the one with the asterisk inside because <laughs> it looks like a tie fighter got it uh really it looks like a tie advance and people are wrong but they call it a tie fighter uh so you may have heard those names for it and it, i'd say applicative more than functor or monad is difficult to come up with use cases for because it is kind of this different way of thinking and in fact the haskell community itself didn't recognize uh or, or sort of the larger functional community in large didn't recognize that applicative was this actually really useful thing until relatively recently like haskell just went through this big change to introduce applicative hmm. it was sort of like on the side and you could opt into it but uh functor still was directly coming from sorry monad was still directly coming from functor so now monad is an applicative and applicative is a functor oh, so that you have this nice chain that was the big thing that um the community was like torn about right because uh, making it applicative made it more kind of correct in the eyes of category theory yes and it gave you more options so before there were things that you might want to do that you had to use a monad for and we'll we'll talk about monad soon monads are more powerful they can do more things uh, where you didn't actually need all that power, and it was kind of like not a great trade-off. And applicative is this uh, space where you need all of your arguments to, to apply your f of a to b, right? You have to have that. But you don't care the order in which those get resolved. Like those arguments can come about in any order. So you can run them in parallel. So applicatives are very well suited to parallel execution. So your map reduce, where you, you fan out and do a bunch of things, and then you fan in and you combine them all back down to a value. So your produce is actually not a bad example. You are sometimes doing, well, actually you're not processing a list, so that's maybe not a great example. Um, but you are kind of doing that fan out, fan in kind of thing. Applicatives are very good structures for that. Got it. Where monads, which we'll talk about uh, soon, are not good 
for that kind of structure. Makes me wonder how many like promise chains I could avoid nesting by chaining these together instead. Hmm. Right, and I think Ramda and fin- uh, not Fancy Land directly, but uh, like Sanctuary uh, has support for applicative type operations hmm. on like things like promises. So that's something to look into. Okay. Unfortunately, this is a thing. Um, most languages, like even like C Sharp, has support for monoids. Of course, like we can just append things together. It has support for functor kinds of things, like we talked about select, and it has support for monad type things, which we'll get to. But almost no languages outside of like Haskell, Scala, PureScript have support uh, built in for applicative kind of things. It's a very kind of newish. Uh, concept and so it hasn't spread wide and far yet so yeah i frankly am disgusted appalled and very frustrated that this is not already part of everything because like all of our listeners i completely followed everything we talked about today and am ready for this so i i will say although it does seem somewhat abstract and difficult to like peg down to very specific examples um if you find yourself needing to go in and out of structure, like maybes or promises or things like that, and having to pack and unpack things, mm-hmm. this is where applicative is nice. And there is a function that takes – so the whole like dollar sign in angle brackets and then asterisk in angle brackets kind of thing, there's a function that does that. It's called lift. And so there's like a lift uh, – a2, A3, A4, depending on how many arguments your function is going to take. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you give it the the function that you want to run, and then you give it all the applicatives, like the first, the second, the third. So in our example before with our plus, we could have said lift A2 plus just one, just three. And it would have hooked them all together and given us back our just, sorry, our just one, just two. And we've given us our just three at the end. So there is a function called lift, uh, lift A2, lift A3, that kind of thing, that takes care of this for us. So you don't always have to use like the infix operator kind of things. Oh, okay. And you will definitely run into those sorts of things. In uh, uh, some people d- vastly prefer the lift function instead of the uh, infix operators. Have you run into that, Cat? Hmm. I've seen lift before, but I wasn't sure if it was related to applicatives or if it was more for monoids or monads. Monads. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. There's a lift m. Yes. Liftm is the one that's mentioned most often. So right. Lift in as in November or as an M as in Mike? M as in Mike. Yeah. Okay. So there's lift M that does the same applicative kind of thing, but for monads. So a little bit of this is like accident of history because monads came first and there was no applicative at that time. Ah, okay. Uh, but lift A is the one you use when you're working with applicatives. And well, all sarcasm aside with my uh, talk about being enraged at the lack. Um, I have to remind myself, and I'll remind the listeners too, when things seem really confusing like this at first, um, sometimes a good night's sleep or just a little time to digest, and you'll start coming across it in various ways. And because of the fact that you started your understanding process listening to this podcast, or maybe you started somewhere else, it's going to be all the clearer the next time it comes. It, you, you come across it, just because you've spent a little time here introducing yourself to it. So it looks like, um, Logan, you found the Ramda apply? Uh, and the lift. Uh, yeah. it, it's called AP, but I don't know if yeah. that's... It does have an apply function. It does something different. 
uh, AP AP is the one that that matches our signature, the F of A to B and F of A to F of B. So in that, they're applying it to uh, lists, or I mean arrays in JavaScript, and they have the list of functions applied individually to every element in the target list. So if you had two functions in the F of A to B, both and, functions and three three values in the F of A, then you would end up mm-hmm. with six values in the F of B because it's going to run them twice. Like it's going to run each function on each value. So that's probably the implementation. It's sort of a Cartesian project, if you're familiar with that. Every possible combination of the things in the lists, that's what it produces. Okay. Ah. All right. I think that about wraps up our discussion. Uh, this is admittedly probably the area that I know the least about in terms of the, you know, the monoid functor applicative monad uh, stack uh, it's fairly new, and there's not a lot of super forthcoming use cases, not quite the same way that uh, Functor and Monad have. So we'll be back soon with another episode, uh, maybe next episode or next few. We're definitely going to hit Monad. We're going to get there. Uh, we'll have a pretty good discussion of that coming up. Uh, in the meantime, though, I'm super interested if anyone in our community has has really solid use cases for applicatives that they could send in or, or let us know about. And we will be sure to cover that in the next episode. Maybe we could have a little follow-up where we have multiple aha light bulbs going off. So if you want to uh, send us that, or you just want to let us know how we're doing in general, please send an email to contact at lambdacast.com or follow us on Twitter at lambdacast. I got something to add. Uh, So two episodes ago, we talked a lot about community stuff and talks. And we did a little bit of talks on this one too. and we talked about like attention spans of lightning talks and everything. Uh, but one of the benefits we didn't go over is that they're often shocking. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> lightning talks are often shocking. I I will also I will also add on similar to last week we had the um seek and find screw Haskell. This this week we've got you can't escape from functor land. You can't escape from functor land. Did I say that? Was was a was a sentence. I don't know if it was Dave or Logan. Once oh, okay. you enter once you enter Functorland, you can't escape. Can't get out. We need to make a comment on the on the episode marking its time. Yeah. <laughs> Just need like sound bites. All right. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Bye. Have a great week. Bye.